Well, open up your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. This last year and a half, you may have noticed, has been a bit of a crazy time in our world. Uh, things have been uh, very strange, and there has actually been, not just in the, in the world out there, but there's been a lot of turmoil in churches. Every pastor that I have talked to, every single pastor I have spoken to uh, over the last six months or so has told me that a lot of people have left their church for a variety of reasons. Now, if Maple Grove is your home church, uh, then you know full well we're no different than any of those other churches. We've had a lot of people leave this church for a variety of reasons. Some of those people have been a part of this church for a really long time that have left the church. And for some that have left and even for some that remain and perhaps are somewhat disgruntled for one reason or another, there has been a pretty common expression. That expression, one of them is, Maple Grove doesn't really feel like Maple Grove anymore. Well, here's the reality. Maple Grove is different than Maple Grove used to be, and it's never going to be the same again. That is the reality. Over 50% of our members here, of our people in church on any given Sunday morning, are new here in the last four years. Uh, that's over half the church. And so here's what that means. Our identity is shifting. It is never going to be the same again. We are a mixture of people now, some who have been here for a really long time and hold on very tightly and dearly to the traditions of this church and the way things have always been done. And then there are people who are relatively new to Maple Grove and don't have any of those traditions whatsoever, don't even know about them. What this means is for over half of the members of this church at this point, these dearly loved traditions and ways of having always done things are not things that they even know about. They're not accustomed to them. That's not their traditions. And so we find ourselves in a place where now I think pretty much 100% of us are experiencing something that's a little different than we're used to. When we come to this church, the ones who are newer to the church are not experiencing church the way they've always done it, and the ones that have been a part of this church are not experiencing church the way that they've always done it. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us taking a little eight-week break from the book of Romans. That's where it leaves us. We're going to do a summer series. I know, I told you to open up to Romans, so you're like, this guy's a liar. We're going to do a little summer series, eight-week series called Gospel Reset. What, what, what we need at Maple Grove right now is a gospel reset. What we need at Maple Grove right now is a reformation. We need to focus our attention on the things that really matter, the things that actually matter, not on our preferences, not on our preferred style of corporate worship service, not on our preferred style of Sunday school, not on our cherished traditions of how we have always done things in this building, not on what Maple Grove was like 100 years ago, 25 years ago, or five years ago. We need to focus on how we can best honor the Lord as his church. How we can best serve those whom he has entrusted into our care. 
how we can humbly serve one another, how we can be most effective for his kingdom on this earth. And so over the next eight weeks, that's what we're going to be talking about, a gospel reset, focusing on what really matters, a a, a reformation, rooting our identity as a local church in the right things. So we're going to be talking about the glory of God this morning. What are the right things we ought to root our identity in? It's the glory of God. It's it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the expressions of, of why we do the things we do in corporate worship. Why do we sing the way we sing and what we sing? And why don't we sing a different way and different things? Why do we preach the way we do? And why don't we preach a different kind of way? Why, why, why take the Lord's Supper every week? To focus on evangelism. Why does it matter that we take the gospel to the world? Why does it matter that we've started doing this thing every month where we go stand in front of whole women's health, which is such an uncomfortable thing to do and a thing that even other Christians give us the side eye about? On discipleship. What does it mean to make disciples and how do we go about doing it? On gospel-centered, life-giving community. These are the things we need to focus on. Not, not, not these other things, not our preferences about how we think it should feel when we come to church. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this next eight weeks together. Now, if you're in the book of Romans chapter 11, we just can't get away from Romans, but this passage was too perfect for the topic. So Romans chapter 11, I'm stealing my thunder from like a couple months from now. I'm going to get to this passage and be like, man, what do I, I might just re-preach this and put my feet up for the week. We don't know what's going to happen. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Hear the word of the Lord now. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you, Lord, for this gift that you have given to your church. Lord, for this gift that you have given to this church, Maple Grove Church, we have your word. That you've given us yourself in your word. And Lord, I do thank you for this church. And as we begin this series now, Lord, refocusing ourselves, calling out to you by your spirit for a reformation in this church, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word, that our hearts would be open by your spirit. Lord, that we as a church would be transformed. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this, this gospel reset, as I said, is really about our need for a reformation. And what better place to look when in need of a reformation than the great reformation, the Protestant reformation. The battle cry of that reformation was semper reformanda. Always reforming. 
Now, this phrase is popular in all kinds of churches. It's popular in churches like ours, Semper Reformanda, but it's also popular in like progressive liberal churches. Semper Reformanda, in other words, let's throw away all that other stuff and let's reform to keep in step with culture. It's been greatly abused to mean keeping up with the culture, to mean just innovation or change for change's sake, but that is not what it meant. It meant quite the opposite of that. The full expression isn't just always reforming, it is the church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the Word of God. That, that's, Semper Reformant is just a shorthand for that. The church has been reformed and needs to be further reformed, constantly reformed by the Word of God. Kevin DeYoung says of this expression, Semper Reformanda is not about constant fluctuations, but about firm foundations. It's about radical adherence to the Holy Scriptures, no matter the cost to ourselves or our traditions or our own fallible sense of cultural relevance. So here's the idea. If we're to be always reforming according to the Word of God, if this gospel reset, this reformation were to happen by the Spirit of God, here's what it is not. It is not a plan for church growth. It is not something that our culture is going to say, hey, this is great, and the people just flock in. Apart from the Spirit of God, this is a plan for church shrinkage. This is not the thing that the unregenerate heart desires but it's what's needed. The, the guiding principle of the Reformation, is, as I hope you know well, if this is your church, is summed up in, in these five Latin expressions, the five solas, sola just meaning alone or only. Sola scriptura, scripture alone as the only inspired, infallible, authoritative word of God. It is totally sufficient. We need nothing outside of scripture for life and godliness. Sola gratia, salvation is by grace alone, not by our works, not by our merits. Sola fide, we are justified, we are given right standing with God through faith alone. And this faith is a gift from Him, not something we earn. Solus Christus, we're saved by the merits of Christ alone. We, we, we approach God the Father Almighty, not through any goodness of our own, but through one mediator, Christ alone and soli Deo Gloria, that sums up all, all of these commitments. The true gospel is that which gives glory to God alone. These are the truths, Christians, that we stake our lives on. They're the foundations of what we believe as Christians. They are the truths upon which the church and this church must be reformed. They culminate in that final sola, to God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory. This is the aim of all that God does, including our salvation. It's His own glory. The ultimate goal of our salvation is the glory of God, even as we benefit by Him saving us. The goal is not our benefit, it's His glory. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 11 that we just read. As we have gone now, I think, 53 weeks in the book of Romans so far, bringing us into Romans chapter 8, we've seen Paul explaining the gospel in great detail. He, he's explained that no one is righteous before God. We are all guilty because of our sin. He has shown us God's plan of salvation 
That, that, that this plan of salvation has always, from the very beginning, been an act of God's grace to man, and that faith is the only way of receiving that salvation. He's argued that just as sin and death came by one man, so the free gift of life has come by one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's rejoiced that everyone found in Christ can never be separated from his love. We're, we're going to get further into that glorious truth as we go further into Romans 8 in two months. Every person who's been chosen for eternal life will one day be glorified. And, and as Paul reflects on these truths, these glorious truths that we've already seen, the ones that, that we'll see as we continue on in the book of Romans, as Paul reflects on all that God has accomplished and all that God has promised that he will accomplish because of the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he now in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, erupts in a hymn of praise. The response of his heart in meditating deeply on these things is worship. Listen to it again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is one of the greatest texts in all of Scripture. In some ways, it, it summarizes what the Reformation was really all about. B.B. Warfield summarized the Reformation and its theology by saying the Reformation was about an apprehension of God in majesty. What, what, what caused the Reformation to happen? It was to see God for who he was. That's what caused it. It's what the Reformation was in its essence, a, a rediscovery of the, the greatness and the glory and the magnitude and the majesty of God in a world and a church that had become thoroughly man-centered, even in its worship, even in its doctrine. The Reformation was a protest against man-centered theology, and instead it declared God alone is glorious. God alone is to be praised. God alone is to be glorified. God is the one who made all things. He alone is to be worshiped. God alone is to be exalted in all of his majesties. And friends, the church today needs that same reformation. The church today is in that same place. The glory, the splendor, the awesomeness of God is being denigrated in the church. Much of the church has lost sight of the majesty and greatness of God. The God who is worshipped in many churches is frankly small and weak. The theology that is presented is thoroughly man-centered. And friends, you and I are not immune from this. Maple Grove is not immune from this. We are not immune from thinking of God in these ways. We need a vision of God as he is. That's what we need. That's what we must always keep before us as a church. We need a reformation, semper reformanda. We need to be always reforming according to the word of God as God has revealed himself in his word. We need to recover a vision of the glory and majesty of God. And so as we go through this particular passage with that end in mind, 
We want to focus on who our God is, a vision of a transcendent God, a sovereign God, a glorious God. Look now at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. Here's this vision that Paul is putting forward of this this transcendent, this incomprehensible God. And And think, the Apostle Paul's the one saying this. Paul is brilliant. If you've been around as we have gone through the book of Romans, Paul says things that makes our minds spin with his intellect and his brilliance. The Apostle Peter says of Paul, some things Paul says are hard to understand. (laughs) I take great comfort in that because as we've been going through the book of Romans, I find myself at the beginning of the week digging into a passage going, now this is difficult to understand. Paul has, in the chapters that precede our passage here in in Romans 11, been expounding on the revelation of God in the gospel. He's been explaining the immensities, the infinities of the faith. And it's perhaps the richest theology that has ever been put on paper. And what does he say after that? What does he say here as he comes to the end of chapter 11? He says, I have seen these immensities, I've seen these infinities, but there are depths here that my mind simply cannot fathom or comprehend. The human mind cannot do so. As if you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean looking over the edge, presuming you might be able to see the floor miles below you. It just goes on and on and on and keeps going further and further down. It is beyond you. Even now, in 2021, the, the most advanced people that have ever lived, surely the most, smart, the, the most intelligent people that have ever lived, so what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. We always think we're smarter than everybody that came before us. We still haven't explored all of the ocean. We still don't have the, the capacity or the ability to do so. Well, if that's true of the ocean, how much more true is it of the one who made the ocean and who holds it together by the power of his word? We we need to remember that. There's always more than we can see. No one can plumb the depths of God's plans, Paul says. God's ways are higher than our ways. His wisdom surpasses our own. His knowledge is vastly beyond our understanding. Of course, we can understand some of what God's doing But for all the purposes of God that we can understand, there's 10 million more things he's doing that we can't, that we don't see, that we don't know. Paul's been amazed by God. And friends, if we would see God the way Paul did, there'd be no taking God lightly. There'd be no approaching God casually. We would stand in awe of his transcendence. That's what this word glory means. When we speak of the the glory of God, that's what the word means. Glory means weightiness. We, We would feel the weight of God, of his greatness. Anyone who takes God lightly has not understood him correctly. He has a false God that he's considering. Those who have beheld his glory take him very seriously. There is a weight, there is a reverence, there is an awe. 
to who God is. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. We can't search them out. How inscrutable are his ways. We can't understand them. We can't wrap our minds around them. Verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? There are aspects of God, realities in the mind of God that you and I will never understand. We could never fathom them. Now in Scripture, God has given us everything we need though. Everything we need for for salvation. Everything we need for faithful living. And we should be eternally thankful for that. But there is so much more to who God is. So much more, his, his being, his attributes, his character, his ways, so much more than we could ever understand. Paul speaks of the depths and riches of the knowledge of God. Think of what it means for God to be omniscient, for God to know everything. Everything. He knows the intricacies of his own being, the eternal infinite God. He understands every intricacy of who he is. We can't even fully understand ourselves. And we're simple creatures. Let alone fully understand him, but God knows himself fully. He he knows all that is outside of himself as well. He knows the entirety of the creation. He knows the answer to every question. There's no fact, no detail, no mystery that is unknown to God. He knows the future perfectly. He knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing that will ever catch God by surprise. He never learns anything through observation. He knows it all. His knowledge is infinite. And Paul also speaks of the depths and the riches of the wisdom of God. There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. It's one thing to know something But you have to be wise to know how to use that knowledge, how to apply that knowledge to achieve a good end. And God has perfect wisdom. He knows how to achieve all of his purposes so as to bring out his good in every situation. Just think of how complicated that must be. To work in everything to accomplish his good purposes. Not just the big things in history, Everything. How complicated it must it have been? How complex are the pieces that come together to arrange the details of all of history in order to ensure that you would be sitting exactly where you're sitting this morning in that pew, in this building, on this day? Imagine that. All the pieces that have come together in all of history for you to be right where you're at. And he's not just doing that for you. He's doing that for everyone and everything all the time. Every person, every event in all of history, God holds them together because of his immense wisdom. Is that not mind-blowing? It's not just though his, his knowledge and his wisdom. It's his judgments God's judgments are his his decrees, what he has determined. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, 
He says, so that, the church, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The eternal purpose of Almighty God. God's plan to bring about the salvation of his people. There are depths to that plan that we cannot imagine. Those depths, Paul says, are unsearchable. And so, so there are depths to God's knowledge. There are depths to God's wisdom. There are depths to God's judgment. And Paul says there are depths to God's ways. God's ways are not our ways. His providence, his, the, the unfolding of God's will in the intricate details of history. The way that that plan actually involves our lives, there are depths to that that we could not possibly fathom, could not possibly understand. It it is beyond us. So here's what that means for us, Christians. We often don't understand what God's doing. His ways are so much higher than our ways that sometimes we doubt. Isn't that true? Sometimes we doubt the goodness of his plan because his ways are so much higher than ours. In in those moments, we need to remember what Paul is saying here. We need to preach to ourselves, to our own hearts. We need to heed the words of our brother Paul here that there are intricacies to the ways of God that are inscrutable to us. There, there are immensities to the ways of God that are far beyond our understanding. Second thing we see is this vision of a, of a sovereign God. In verse 35, Paul quotes the end of the book of Job from Job chapter 41. In, in verse 35, he says, Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Why does Paul insert this quote from the book of Job right here into the middle of this statement? Why why, why quote something from the end of the book of Job? Well, remember what's going on with Job. Job, remember, has been asking God for an explanation. He has been suffering, and he wants to know why. God hasn't told him why. He's upset about that. He wants the answer. He wants to understand the ways of God. He wants to understand the intricacies of how God is is working all things out, and God has been silent. God hasn't said anything. Job has had some very bad counsel from some friends. His wife wasn't a ton of help. Curse God and die is not good advice, by the way. Job has come before God demanding an explanation as though God owes him anything. As though God owes anyone an explanation for anything in our lives. Don't we do that though when we're in the midst of suffering and we're struggling and we're doubting and we can't understand the plan of God and we're like, well, why does God hate me? He won't give me an answer. It's because, friend, God doesn't owe you an answer. That's not how God operates. You don't even do that as a parent. Tell your kids something and they go, why? And you've all said it. Because I'm your dad. Not in the mood to answer a four year old's questioning my authority right now. 
One of the things that Job learns at the end of his ordeal is the fact that God owes us nothing. God is no man's debtor. He doesn't owe anyone anything. So here in Romans, in the chapters immediately preceding this passage, Paul has been explaining the God-centeredness of the gospel, that our salvation is purely the result of God's grace. It is a matter of his sovereign choosing and not our efforts. In chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, Paul has been expounding on the intricacies of the doctrine of election and predestination. And you might hear those words and go, ooh, those are Paul's words, so we should like them. It's a little helpful hint. But he even goes so far as to say this. Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And we come up with a lot of excuses for God on that one, because that sounds pretty bad. Paul doesn't give us any wiggle room because in verse 11 he said, before they were born and had done anything, either good or bad. It wasn't because of what they did. It was because of God's sovereign choosing. So Paul has been talking about the absolute sovereignty of God, saying there is a purpose of God behind his electing, saving grace and a purpose of God which leads to reprobation. And Paul knows our temptation in response to this is to say, that is not fair. In fact, if you're sitting here thinking that's not fair, I remind you all I did was read those verses. And you must be understanding them correctly if that's your response. That's what the human heart says to this. Paul addresses this argument in Romans 9 in exactly the same way that God addressed Job's argument. Who do you think you are to question God? That's why the Apostle Paul's referencing the book of Job here, because fairness has nothing to do with this. Fairness is nowhere to be found. There is no one righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us has given something to God that God should repay us for it. Not one of us has God in his debt. Paul is emphasizing the sheer sovereignty of God in the giving of saving grace. And friends, this is the best news in the whole world. Because if he did not choose us, we would never come. Think of that family member that you've been praying for for years to come to salvation and that thing that rises up in your heart that goes, if it's ultimately up to God, that's just not fair. Now think of what, what a goober that family member is. Do you really want their eternal destiny in their hands or in our gracious, loving God's hands? Oh, we're so man-centered. We are so man-centered. We have such a low view of God that we would presume to question him. So we can't divorce these truths that, that, that we see here from the truths of the goodness of God. He only always does what is good. He only always does what is right. He only always does what is just and beautiful and true and perfect. 
John Calvin, in the first sermon he preached when he preached through Job, said it is a good thing, a great thing, a wonderful thing to be subject to the majesty of God. God was not unfair to Job. God was not unfair to Pharaoh. He hasn't been unfair to you. So what we see in this passage is a vision of a God who is big, far bigger than we can understand, far bigger than we can comprehend. We see a God who is, in fact, incomprehensible, inscrutable. There there are depths to the knowledge and the wisdom of God. We see a God who is absolutely sovereign, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, who saves by grace alone and is no man's debtor. We go on in verse 36 to see the glories of God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Here is Paul's summation of his his meditation on the greatness of God. What's that summation? Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. This is what happens when we meditate on the sovereignty of God. This is what happens when when our theology shifts from man-centered to God-centered. We're in awe of him. That's what happens. We respond with humility and worship. That's why one of the best things you can do for yourself is to study the greatness of God. The greatness of his works, the greatness of his attributes. There's an old Puritan expression, think greatly about the greatness of God. It's one of the best things we can do, to think high and lofty thoughts of our God. So what is it that, that, that Paul has been drawn to as he's pulled together all these threads that God has been revealing in creation and providence and in the unfolding revelation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it that the Apostle Paul has been drawn to when thinking deeply about those things? Well, it's simply this. All things exist for the glory of God. All things exist for the glory of God because from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Charles Spurgeon says, Paul explained as a general principle that all things come from God. They are from Him as their source. They are through Him as their means, and they are to Him as their end. They are from Him in the plan, through Him in the working, and to Him in the glory they produce. Oh, friends, this is what must be at the heart of our existence as a church. At the heart of our existence as Maple Grove Church must be this. That the great end and purposes of God in creation and redemption, in creating us, in saving us, in rescuing us, in bringing us into union with himself through Christ is, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, that we would, as our chief end, glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we exist. It's our purpose. Virgin again says, thus it should be our desire and goal to bring glory to him in all things. If you really want to glorify God, take care that you don't do it with lip service, 
which dies away in the wind, but with true honor in daily life. Praise him by your patience and pain, by your perseverance in duty, by your generosity in his cause, by your boldness in testimony, by your consecration to his work. Praise him not only in worship services on Sunday morning, but praise him also every day by doing something for God in all sorts of ways according to the manner in which he has been pleased to bless you. This, this, this truth of God that we see in this ivory tower that Paul has constructed, we need to climb that tower. We need to behold these glories. But it has real life application right here with both feet firmly on the ground. We would live lives consecrated to God. Let me close by sharing the personal motto of that great reformer, John Calvin. His personal motto was this, I offer my heart promptly and sincerely. God, I offer my heart promptly and sincerely. It should be our prayer for our lives. It should be our response to seeing the glories of our God. God, I offer all of me, as we learned in our adult Sunday school class, which you should definitely be coming to this morning, the heart is just all of you. I offer all of you, all of myself to you, God, promptly, sincerely. This is what meditating on the glory of God does to Christians. It causes us to bow our knee before him, to acknowledge that all glory belongs to him alone and, and all things exist for his glory. That was the heart of the Protestant Reformation. It's the heart of the scriptures. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the very heart of God himself, and it must be the heart of Maple Grove Church. May we be a people captivated with the glory of God. May our primary goal as a church be to glorify God. May it cause us to put away petty squabbles and complaints. Oh, do, do you see how when we, we see the glory of who God is and what he has accomplished in salvation and what the goal of our lives and the church should be, how stupid some of the things we've gotten mad about really are? May this be the goal of our church. May this be the, the unifying focus of this church. May this drive the reformation that we need. So what's our strategy for how we're going to glorify God as a church then? Actually, a better question is, what's the Bible's strategy for glorifying God as a church? That's what the rest of this sermon series is going to be about. The church glorifies God through corporate worship, through our singing together, through the proclamation of the Word of God, the whole council, through our coming to the table of communion together, through our evangelism and through discipleship and through our intentional building of community, our, our intentional strengthening the bonds of love with those God has called us into fellowship with in the local church. That's what we're going to be talking about this summer. I would encourage you to make every effort to be here uh, for this. I trust that the Lord has great things in store for this church, has good plans. It's a miracle. Those of you that have been around long enough to know the story of this church know that it's miraculous 
that these doors are unlocked and the lights are on and people are in this building. This church has been through some rough times. And this sermon series is not the product of frustration. It's not the product of, of my feeling like the prophet Jeremiah and shaking my fist that the Lord has beguiled me and sent me to a ungrateful people. No, not at all. It's just my great desire that we would be about the right things, that the Lord would work mightily, that the greater days would lie ahead of us than the days that have been behind. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word. Lord, in your kindness to us, kindness undeserved, this God, this transcendent, sovereign, glorious God is our Father. You have called us into intimate fellowship with this God. Lord, what a humbling and amazing thing that is. Lord, we rejoice in you, our God. We rejoice in your gospel. We rejoice in the work of your spirit in our lives, reconciling us, we who were enemies, we who were rebels, confirming to us the truth of your great salvation accomplished in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would make us faithful. Lord, each Christian in this room, that you would make us faithful to you in our lives, that you would make us faithful as a church. Lord, that we would be a shining city on a hill. I do pray, Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, all who hear my voice, who heard the gospel, who've heard the, the greatness of our God, Lord, unless you call, they will never come. I pray by your spirit you would call them now. Call them to yourself. Call them to salvation. Give to them a heart of flesh in place of their heart of stone. Give to them the gift of repentance and saving faith, I pray. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your power and your majesty. We rejoice in you. We glory in you. In Jesus' name.